This is Swordplay. Alex, last week, 371 years ago in church history, the larger Westminster Catechism was finished. That sounds delicious. The larger the better, Nick. I'll take it grilled or deep fried, maybe a bit of lemon pepper. Well, wait a minute. No, no. I'm uh, Catechism. Are, are you talking about catfish? Oh, I thought you said catfishing. This changes nothing I said, though. This is Swordplay. We are your hosts. I'm Nick Perez, preaching minister for the Davis Park Church of Christ in Modesto, California. I'm Alex Flood. I'm an evangelist for the Lake Phelan Church of Christ in St. Paul, Minnesota. On this episode of Swordplay, Philippians chapter 1. And we need a reminder for the audience, Nick. Yeah, be sure, grab your Bible right now. And if you haven't already done so, hit pause and read through... Philippians chapter 1, it'll take you three to five minutes. Um, If you want, and you're feeling eager, go ahead and read through the whole book. It's just four chapters. And then come back, hit play, and listen to uh, the questions and answers that we're going to pose here in this episode. That's good encouragement and advice, Nick. Well, what are we starting out with today? How about the lightning round? The lightning round. Ooh, I better get out my timer for the lightning round. This is going to be a challenging lightning round. we got quite a few questions to cover today. So, uh, Nick, how about I ask you the first question? Let's roll. And we'll take turns going from there. Let's see. Stopwatch ready. On your marks. Get set. Nick, who is Paul? So much could be said about him. Paul is his Greco-Roman name. Saul was his Jewish name. From 3 verse 5 of Philippians, we know he's an Israelite, a Hebrew of the tribe of Benjamin, a Pharisee who was circumcised on the eighth day. When was Philippians written? Well, Nick, I opt for the late date of uh, Paul's first imprisonment in Rome, which would be the early 60s, uh, picking up where the book of Acts leaves off. Nick, who is Timothy? He's a third-generation disciple. He's a constant traveling companion of Paul's, joins him on for stints in his second and third missionary journeys. What's a bondservant? Uh, the Greek there is doulos. It means slave. It's applied as a positive spiritual attribute when in the context of faithfulness to God. Notice how Christ took the form of a bondservant in chapter 2, verse 7. Yet, he wasn't literally anyone's slave, but we serve God, we serve his church, and thus we are spiritual slaves, which is a good thing in this context. Nick, where is Philippi? It was originally founded as Cronides by residents of nearby island of Thassos in around 360 BC. It's in northeast Greece. It was named after Philip II of Macedonia, who is the father of Alexander the Great. What's a saint? Uh, the Greek there is hagios. It means holy ones. Every Christian is a saint. Note the parallelism of uh, equipping the saints and building up the body of Christ in Ephesians 4.12. Interesting note, Nick. Holy ones are what God calls the angels in the Old Testament. Nick, what's an overseer? Another word for this is bishops, not to be confused with the X-Men character. These are the <laughs> equivalent of elders in the first century church. How about this one, Alex? What's a deacon? Uh, deacons, Greek there is diakonos. It's... Uh, people who are responsible for certain welfare duties in the church and possibly certain administrative tasks. And that's the lightning round. Lightning round. We kept it under two minutes, just under two minutes. That's incredible. All right. Well, we got a lot more ground to cover here, so I guess we should (laughs) uh, press forward. We should. We'll pick up right around verse five, where Paul says to the Philippian church, uh, he's talking about their participation in the gospel from the first day until now. Now, Nick, how had the Philippians partnered in the gospel with Paul? What was the first day? What's he referring to? Well, the word there for partnered is literally uh, the fellowship, and that has to do with sharing of common objects. Um, So the fellowship of the Philippian church uh, with Paul, it would seem, in the gospel that's what he's talking about here. There could be their faith in Christ. That would bring them into fellowship with God, Christ, the whole Christian church, including Paul. Um, that manifested itself, their faith did, and was embodied in their generous contribution to the apostolic ministry of Paul. Now, the first day, this seems to be talking about the establishment of the church in Philippi when they push, uh, first put their faith <clears throat> in Christ. Uh, They've been willing to contribute to Paul's work. And so their faith had prompted action right from the very first, when the gospel first came 
uh, to the people in Philippi. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, that does. So we're not talking about uh, day one of creation, right? Right, <clears throat> nor the, the first day after the crucifixion of Jesus, first day that the gospel was introduced and the church was established in Philippi. How about um, how about we go to verse 6? It's also verse 10, also 2 verse 16. talks about this, this phrase, day of Christ or day of Jesus Christ. Alex, what is the day of Jesus Christ? You know, Nick, this is pretty interesting because this phrase only occurs in the book of Philippians. Uh, if you look elsewhere, you might get a similar phrase, the day of the Lord, and that's usually the one we hear of when we're talking about uh, eschatology especially. But as we discussed in previous podcasts, the day of the Lord language, that kind of speaking, uh, can refer to temporal judgment upon a people or a nation, and we're talking about before the resurrection. Right. So just like God judged nations in the past in the Old Testament. He still does today. But however, Nick, in this context, in Philippians, I really do believe Paul is using this phrase to refer to the resurrection. So it just kind of shows you that these phrases are context-driven, right? Hmm. So the resurrection has not yet occurred. Uh, Chapter 1, you could look at this phrase, and maybe you could argue it either way. Temporal judgment versus end of time resurrection. But I think the clearest indicator comes from chapter 2 verse 16. So I'm not trying to cheat. I know we'll get to chapter 2 next week, but 2:16 uh says holding fast the word of life so that in the day of Christ I will have reason to glory because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. Now, it seems that Paul seems to have a reward in mind, his reward for his running, so that he would be rewarded for all the work he did. So uh, when I say reward, let's be sure that nobody is hearing me say salvation. I'm not talking about salvation. I'm talking about a reward in addition to salvation based off of the success of Paul's work of discipleship. So Paul wants the Philippians to succeed in every way as faithful Christians so that his work on them will be rewarded to himself on the day of Christ, as opposed to getting to the resurrection and finding out that all his work was in vain. And yeah, he has his salvation because that's a gift, but he has no reward. That would be quite a sad story. Hmm. Nick, what do you think? No, I concur with that. And I think that's right on that in view here is um, the day of judgment, um, that final day when Paul is rewarded. He's a He's already a saved individual. The Philippians are saved individuals, but um, right, right. it's on that day when God is going to finish up the good work of, of human redemption. I think that brings into view here um, the scope of God's view, uh, of God's work, his good work that he does. It's not individualistic. That's kind of how we think of it in an American or Western context, but it's holistic. It involves the uh, more than just one person it involves uh, the whole church. It even involves creation, as we know from elsewhere in the New Testament. Oh, right. Yeah, Romans 8. So let's go to verse 7, I suppose. Paul talks about his imprisonment um, and how the Philippians, they partook of grace uh, with him. But let's first talk about the imprisonment there. What imprisonment does Paul refer to? Here. It's not just verse 7, by the way. It's verse 13, verse 17, also 422 in this epistle. Okay, well, we mentioned briefly in the lightning round, lightning fast, that I do opt for the late date of the letter, meaning that uh, this was written during Paul's first imprisonment in Rome, which would be the early 60s AD, uh, picking up where the book of Acts leaves off. So this makes sense to me when I think about the other things in this letter. So Paul mentions Caesar's household, chapter 4, verse 22. And he also mentions his expectation of release at the end of this chapter in verse 25. So Philippians 1.25. And if we look back on church history, that actually did happen. He makes it uh, out of that first imprisonment, travels to Spain, comes back, is arrested again, and it's during that second arrest, that second Roman imprisonment, I should say, that he uh, meets his uh, his final end and uh, reward. So that's I think that's when he wrote Second Timothy, and we covered that before too, where he talks about 
being rescued from the lion's mouth, but right. he's finished the work. He's ready to go on. He's he's completed the task. So uh, that's the way I see it. What do you think, Nick? Well, there, there is another potential view. I agree with the late date for uh, the writing of this epistle, 63, 64, maybe somewhere in there. Um, but it is possible that Paul here, at least in this particular instance, in verse 7 of chapter 1, is talking about his imprisonment while he was in Philippi, Acts 16, verses 22 through 36. That's when he started the church by a riverside with some ladies who were there at the hour of prayer, and then in the prison cell with the Philippian jailer later that night. Um, He did just mention the first day in uh, uh, verse 5, which uh, we saw earlier. So um, that could be talking about the day that the church was established in Philippi, and so in this context, at least specifically here in verse 7, it could be referring to that imprisonment in Philippi, and that's when they were partakers of grace with him, which leads us to verse 7. Excuse me, we're already in verse 7, but the next part of this question, which is, how did they partake in grace with Paul? Right. So... He calls them partakers of grace with me. So this harkens back, I think, to their participation in the gospel mentioned in verse 5. What do you What do you know, Nick? Paul just happens to connect all of his thoughts, right? So Yeah, go figure. <laughs> verse 5 connects to verse 6, connects to verse 7. So Paul hints at this again, I think, in chapter 4, verses 10 through 19, and especially chapter 4, verses 14 through 15. So my take is that there are at least two ways in which the Philippian church became partakers of grace with Paul. Number one, they were partakers in grace by suffering similar afflictions for the cause of Christ. Paul mentions his suffering in verse uh, 1-7, and then it kind of assumes their suffering at the end of the chapter in 1 verse 29. And whether that's something already present among them or something that's just sort of a pressing uh, imminent suffering that they're going to face, but now they have courage to face it, seeing how Paul is so boldly facing his own affliction. That's that's kind of the first measure of sharing in grace with Paul, is actually sharing in sufferings. Uh, the second measure there would be financial and material giving. So you mentioned this in verse 5, and again it harkens, uh, well I wouldn't say it harkens back, it actually looks forward to what he'll say in chapter 4 verse 15 that no other church other than the Philippians shared in giving and receiving with him so uh, I think Paul likely refers in verse 7 here to their giving to his needs while he uh, was imprisoned and while he traveled around Mm -hmm. Uh, what say you Nick no I concur with that as well that's uh uh, I think that's that's both of those ways are are accurate if I could add anything it might be an evangelistic component um, that uh, was probably led by someone like Epaphroditus. Mm. We'll run into him in the next episode with chapter 2. Uh, before they send him back to Paul, maybe he led some kind of evangelistic campaign there in Philippi. But no, that's I think those are astute observations. Well, Nick, let me ask you, in verse 8, what does it mean uh, for someone to yearn with the affection of Christ? Yeah, that's an interesting phrase. God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Literally, um, he's talking about the inward parts, and so those inward parts to the ancients, that was uh, they considered that the, the seat of emotional life in your belly. We just moved it a little further north to the heart. but um, <laughs> um, So Paul, he so unites with Christ. This is how one writer put it that he feels with the heart of Christ. He loves with the love of Christ. Another writer was talking about how Paul was willing to suffer for them as Jesus had suffered for them. So he, especially when it comes to love, and we're going to talk about love in the next question specifically, but uh, the way I've sought to define love in an objective way as opposed to a subjective way, just feelings-based versus uh, something a bit more concrete, is that Paul desperately desired to see Christ formed more fully in the Philippians. And so that's what he's going to pray uh, here in just a moment in verse 9. But, um, Alex, it reminds me of our relationship, 
how we're separated by many miles and we talk often, uh, especially through the podcast, right? but we don't get to see one another very often. And so to see one another and rekindle the bond of our relationship, we got to do that this last summer face-to-face, man, that just, it cannot be matched by correspondence or phone call. And maybe, just maybe, that's what Paul is talking about here when he says, I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. That makes sense? Yeah, I think that face-to-face interaction uh, definitely pops up here and also in some of the other letters that Paul wrote, longing to see those uh, whom he had known and, and converted and fathered in the faith. Yeah, I think all of that's definitely pointing in the right direction. So let's talk about Paul and prayer and love and knowledge and discernment, because he talks all about all that in verse 9. Right. Um, so the question is, Alex, how does love abound in knowledge and discernment? Well, in my uh, New American Standard, it says he prays that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and That's all good. discernment. Yeah. So that uh, real knowledge there, what the translator's trying to do is bring out the meaning of this Greek word epigenosis. Now, gnosis is just knowledge in general, and there's nothing good or bad about that. Epigenosis is supposed to mean a more precise and correct knowledge. So Paul uses this from time to time in his letters. Peter uses it in his letters. I think that they use this word epigenosis to show uh, that they all knew something that was true through the gospel. Now, when we talk about gnosis and epigenosis, sometimes people want to talk about Gnosticism and that there's Gnostic problems here, and therefore these are, since Gnosticism didn't arrive until another hundred or so years, therefore these letters are not really written by Paul. They're written in the future, a hundred years from the first century. Now, that's not really necessary because there's another group of opponents in the first century who did claim to have special knowledge and experiences, and those were Jewish mystics. So Jewish mysticism was mixed in there with the Jewish opponents that the first century church was battling, and that we know the Philippians are battling as well. So uh, we'll get to that in chapter 3. So so these Jewish you know, mystics, what are they saying? They're saying that they've had visions, they've had these dreams, they've had these out-of-body experiences, they've had these special messages given just for them, and so therefore they have the true and correct and accurate knowledge that's uh, better than Paul, better than the apostles, and so maybe they're claiming to be super apostles or something like that. But here's the thing. When Paul uses this word epigenosis, he destroys the opponent's soapbox by placing the epigenosis firmly in the hands of not some, but all Christians who have the gospel, something that is known and available to all, not just a special chosen few. And so from that knowledge, epigenosis, true love flows out of that true knowledge. And that manifests itself in gentleness. We get that in chapter 4. It accompanies all discernment, which is really speaking more about like ethical and moral standards, as opposed to the uh, immoral intentions and actions of false teachers. So if I had to summarize it, Nick, I'd say in short, true love flows and abounds through true knowledge and true discernment. And these are elements of Christian teachings clearly understood and seen in the gospel. They're not seen in a vision. They're not some mystical experience. And they're not something only known by or experienced by the elite. So that's that's what I dug up there on the uh, epigenosis. Yeah, your thoughts? That's pretty. That's really good. Um, and I would come alongside and and uh, just iterate from um, what I'm seeing here. Uh, we're talking about about love abounding in knowledge and discernment. How that happens, um, and I believe one way that happens is prayer. Paul begins this verse, he says, this is my prayer, um, to abound in more love for people. That is, a, uh, to kindle within us a desire to see Christ formed in others. That requires prayer, to abound in the, the full knowledge, the true knowledge, the real knowledge you were talking about. 
um, and especially true knowledge of the way of love. Uh, and by the way, in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. That also requires prayer to abound in that, to abound in full discernment or all discernment so that you are sensitive to the needs of others and the need to guard love. That requires prayer as well. And so Paul prays, knowing that prayer is one of the best ways to influence others. Uh, do you want to know how to abound in love and knowledge and all discernment? Prayer. Uh, that's, that's uh, I think, a key component here as well, in addition to the things that you mentioned. So, mm, Good thoughts. Uh, verse 11, Paul talks about being filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, the glory and praise of God. Uh, Alex, what are they filled, or excuse me, when are they filled with the fruit of righteousness? Yeah, this was a little tricky, because when I first saw it, it made me think, reading it in English, like, oh, you know, we get to the end, and then at the end, we will be filled with this fruit of righteousness. But that's not what Paul is saying here. That word filled, it's a verb, and in the Greek, it's, uh, it's in the perfect tense, and it's in the passive voice. So when I say perfect tense, what that means is that this is an action that was already completed. It's done. But it's perfect because it has an ongoing effect. It keeps going and going and going. It continues on. And then it's passive, meaning that the subject, which is the Christian here, he was acted upon. He didn't do the acting. It was done for him. And so Christ Jesus himself filled the Christian with the fruit of righteousness upon their putting of faith into him. We get some more of that in chapter 3, verse 9. And that ongoing effect is that the Christian will live according to and worthy of that righteousness. That's at the end of the chapter, verse 27. And that's in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, the resurrection. So the uh, idea there is really, it's really quite hopeful. It's, it's good news. Christ has filled you with the fruit of righteousness that will keep working its way out in your life. But you have to choose to respond in a way that is worthy of that gift. So you cannot live in response to that righteousness. That is possible. If you don't believe me, go to Galatians chapter 5, verse 4, where he says that there are certain people there who have been severed from Christ and who have fallen from grace. You can't be severed from something you were never connected to. You can't fall from something you never had. So that's the idea there with being filled with the fruit of righteousness. Yeah, that's that's good. Uh Appreciate you point out the tense and voice of this because that's significant. Um, and if I could capture it in um, what Paul is saying here in English, it might be something like they, the filling started when they became Christians and the filling continues as they live the Christian life. Um, and it's God who filled them and it's God who continues to fill them. Uh, we could also say that these Christians were made full and they stand full of the fruit of righteousness. So uh, I like that. Yeah, all those all those are kind of different ways of talking about this filling here. As we press forward here, uh, verse 13, Paul talks about how um, he has made known the gospel throughout the whole imperial guard or the whole Praetorian guard. Uh, Alex, what in the world is the Praetorian guard? Uh, the Praetorian Guard is how my New American Standard translates it, and it's just one word in the original language. It's Praetorian, and it could refer to a governor's palace, or it could even be the camp or a post of a military leader. So if Paul was in Rome, like I think he is, then it does say in Acts 28 verse 16 that he had a soldier guarding him, so he's almost on this house arrest but he's not in a dungeon. Um, his living quarters actually sound pretty nice. You get that in Acts 28, verse 30. So if he is imprisoned at the Praetorian Guard, it means he has uh, bodyguards around him. It means he can come and go freely. It means he's basically living in one of the rooms of a palace. <laughs> and uh, that's where he spends his two years, when in Rome, awaiting his uh, trial before... Uh, the 
Caesar for the first time. What do you think, Nick? Yeah, when in Rome, you're guarded by Nero's soldiers. Um, (laughs) I'm inclined to see here those guards whose barracks were attached to Nero's palace. Um, And I heard something just yesterday. Uh, We had our our, uh, Bible services, midweek Bible services here, and uh, we have a lot of skilled uh, teachers of the Word here, and and the, the man who was teaching happened to mention that in all likelihood, these guards uh, did three-hour shifts. And so they'd come in three hours with Paul, and then after three hours, another guard would come in. So you had this constant rotation of uh, these Praetorian guards, these imperial guards who were coming through. And so it makes sense that in, with that kind of rotation schedule, eventually everyone in the whole imperial guard is going to hear the gospel because Paul, I'm sure the, as soon as the guy came in, as soon as a soldier came in, he was he was talking to him about the gospel, and so, right. um, yeah, that's that's a a bit of light, I suppose, on on what happened there and what Paul was doing while in prison. Yeah, that makes a lot of makes a lot of sense. Turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. That's right. So, Nick, I think this brings us to our tough text. Tough text. Tough text. Tough text comes from verses 15 through 18. Mm -hmm. So it's a little bit involved, and we may even have to read it, but the question is, is Paul condoning impure motives in preachers so long as Christ is preached? So let's let's dig into that, Nick. What do you think? Man, it's it's, it's such an interesting dynamic that's going on here in verses uh, 15 through 18. The, the men who Paul identifies um, who preached Christ from envy and rivalry. It doesn't seem like they were sincere um, in some kind of uh, pretension. It's that they're brothers in Christ is seems evident. Uh, the context there, verse 14, he's talking about brothers. Uh, most of the brothers, they've been emboldened to speak the word without fear based on Paul's imprisonment. Right. But then Paul, he breaks down that group into two parties. There are some, that's the word he uses there in verse 15, some are preaching Christ from mixed motives. And then the other word he uses in verse 15 is others. And the others preach Christ from good motives or goodwill and so most commentators that you read will jump on the Judaizer bandwagon, hmm. uh, that these are maybe the Jewish mystics that you mentioned earlier, Alex, or uh, those uh, people who, are, uh, who, who refused to give up the law, and, and they became Christians, but they said, you also have to follow the law of Moses, otherwise you can't be saved. Um, and they do that because of 3 verse 2 and, and the stuff that... Paul talks about there right. in that section, but <clears throat> based on what Paul writes in Galatians, though, about Judaizers, doesn't seem like he'd rejoice in their perverted doctrine, right. even if Christ is bre- being <laughs> proclaimed, right? Yeah, he calls them so, severed. Exactly. And so <clears throat> to jump on that bandwagon, I'm just, uh, yeah, I don't think so. These brothers' motives were mixed, not their message. And that's a that's a key distinction I think needs to be made here. It seems uh, best to understand these rivals are a factious group who view the imprisonment of Paul as discrediting uh, the Christian message. And they appear to be a faction whose strategy is to excel in power. They want to exude success so as to compete in an ancient religious market of ideas and ideals. And, of course, that ancient religious market is rife with pagan teachers. And so Paul being in prison, that could torpedo their efforts uh, of of gaining ground in Mm. the agora of ideas. So they denounce Paul's imprisonment. Uh, He talks about the phrase he uses as thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. In short... These guys are pro-Christ, but they're anti-Paul because, yeah, he's he's bringing them down. Don't bring me down, Paul, all right? But um, the continual proclamation of Christ, and it's, it's free from heresy, free from perversion. 
um, regardless of the motivations. That seems to be what Paul has in mind here. The full gospel is being preached. It's not an anemic gospel like the Judaizers bring or, right. or a heretical thing, anything like that. This is not some Christ is better than no Christ type of thinking that some have held in the past. Yeah. Paul would not tolerate another gospel featuring another Christ. Right. And so this is Paul rejoicing over the full proclamation of the full gospel, the true gospel featuring the true Christ, regardless of personal motivation, that selfish ambition that he mentions there in verse 17. It's just, it's... <laughs> Brilliant. Thank you. Thank you. Brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> that's the best I can do with it. It's, it's just an interesting little dynamic there that's going on in those verses. Yeah, I don't think I could add anything to that. That was, uh, I think, a, a really good way of putting it. And it was making me think, even as you were talking, of, of different aspects that reinforce your answer, like the uh, shame and honor culture that they lived in, right? Right. So, you know, you want to be a respected religious speaker, like you said, in the marketplace of uh, philosophy. And so... Being imprisoned is is a shameful thing, and it brings shame to you, and it brings shame to the the people who know you, who are associated with you. So yeah, you have these guys who are uh, disassociating from Paul, but not necessarily changing the gospel message. And that makes sense, especially because the uh, man we've covered this in other letters in Jude and Second Peter. I mean, people who mess with the gospel do not get a pass; like they get. Uh, railed against pretty hard. So, um, like you mentioned, Galatians, very good. Verse 19, though, Nick, um, he's in prison, and he starts talking about, is it better to to be executed, to go on, or to stay back and work? And it kind of seems like he maybe expects to be delivered and provided for, but the question here is, in what way? What did Paul mean by his expectation of deliverance and provision? And what exactly does that mean then that people were praying for on Paul's behalf? What are your thoughts? Yeah, so the uh, in my English standard, he talks about this will turn out for my deliverance, and the this there could mean either his imprisonment or the preaching from impure motives, which we just, I mean, that's what he just wrote about in verses 15 through 18. Um, given his rejoicing in verse 18... Um, the rejoicing of future deliverance, it seems best to understand his imprisonment is, is what is in view here. Um, and so the prayers, the petitions of these saints um, would be apparently that he'd be released, uh, that he would be delivered, and that the, the Spirit would make provision for him. Uh, and, and so Paul, he was confident of this. He was confident he'd be freed. In fact, that's the argument he's going to make here in this next section. Uh, reasoning to the conclusion in verse 25. We'll talk about that more in a few minutes, but um, that's what he. it seems he has in mind, and, and it seems like what the, the saints could be praying for is Paul be released, freed, rescued from his bonds. Uh, sure. What say you? You know, I like the way he reasons it out in the following verses because it makes me think that Paul is playing both sides of the deliverance idea. So, He's happy to be delivered from prison. He'll go on to explain why, but however, he's also happy to be delivered from this world and to go to be with the Lord. And so his next sentence, you know, he's, whether he'll exalt Christ either way, whether by life or by death. And this shows his viewing of either scenario as some type of deliverance, and therefore it would be an answer to prayer either way. The Spirit would be then uh, providing for Paul, in either case, the, the continuing strength that he needs to endure his imprisonment until he's released, right? or the courage and strength and boldness he needs to die faithful, to stay faithful unto death, um, that strengthening the Spirit can give to you in your inter, inner man, in your inner being. That's Ephesians 3.16. And all you need to do is pray for it. That's the prayer in Ephesians 3. So... I go back to Acts chapter 12. Christians have already seen apostles killed by the uh, empire, right? Right. James, the brother of John, son of Zebedee, Acts chapter 12, he's killed by the sword by Herod. And Peter, uh, he's in line next for the same thing, but guess who rescues him? An angel. And so he's rescued out of the prison. He goes to the house of Christians, and they're praying. They're probably praying for him. And so... 
what were they praying for? I think either way, it says the church was praying about it, and they were praying for provision, I think, and that provision would apply to whatever circumstance unfolded. So uh, let me say it this way. It's not double-minded to say, Lord, if it's time for Paul to go, provide for him what he needs. Lord, if you want him to stay, provide for him what he needs. Either way, you're praying the same thing. The Lord is being faithful and answering your prayer either way. And that is uh, not a lack of faith or a double-minded faith. I think that's a legit prayer because they uh, were happy to die for the cause of Christ. Well, speaking of being happy to die, (laughs) (laughs) how happy exactly was Paul in order to be a martyr? Was he seeking to be a martyr? Did he have a death wish? What do you think? Yeah, was he channeling his inner Charles Bronson or something? (laughs) Um, Here's the thing. The dilemma in verses 20 through 25, 26, thereabouts, the dilemma is between the continuance of his apostolic ministry, which is a good work, or sealing his testimony for Christ in his own blood, which is a good witness. Good work, good witness. And just it, and this builds on kind of what you were saying in the previous question, whether the verdict renders um, whether the verdict rendered frees him from his imprisonment or sends him to a martyr's death, Paul is convinced Christ is going to be glorified in me, uh, in his body. Uh, he says there at the end of verse 25, whether by life or by death. And so if his freedom led to the furtherance of his apostolic ministry, Christ is glorified in that. If his captivity led to his faithfulness unto death, Christ would be glorified in that. And so these alternatives may seem vastly different, but to Paul, they brought about the same end. And that is the glorification of Christ in, by, and through him. Um, so that's that's the dilemma. Was he seeking to be a martyr, Alex? What do you think? You know, this may sound really weird, but the more I thought about it, the more I came to the conclusion that yes, yes, yeah. he was. So martyrdom results, I believe, in a greater reward. So I'll elaborate more on that when we get to verse 23. But uh, I'll just mention this. There's an early Christian writing uh, called the Letters of Ignatius. And one of these letters that Ignatius wrote, he's on his way to be executed for the cause of Christ. And on his way, he's sending some letters out to different churches to encourage them. And in part of those letters, this guy is like very, very eager to be executed. And you read through it, and it it feels weird. It's like, this guy, is he right in the head? Like, does he, (laughs) uh, are the lights on in there? Because some some commentators have said that he sounds neurotic. (laughs) So it's like, um, I don't know. Interesting how you have early church leaders viewing martyrdom with such eagerness and joy was he imitating paul was he aware of something in regard to his own reward that maybe we don't talk about today there were there were a lot of guys in the early centuries of the church early church writers that were lining up for martyrdom they'd come out you had you had guys who were spinning out on Jesus in the desert, and they'd come into the cities when they heard there was persecution. They were putting Christians to death. They'd show up and offer themselves to be martyred. You know? Yeah. Why are they crazy? It, that's I guess, exactly that's a such a foreign concept to our, especially our American minds, where we're so comfort and pleasure focused. But uh, not Paul, and not some of those early Christians. And I think. Uh... As we elaborate in future questions, maybe they weren't so crazy. Right. Well, Nick, what does it mean to live is Christ? That's such a cool, like, one-liner thing to say. Like, yeah. to live you, is Christ. Like, it's so memorable. What put it on a bumper mean? sticker. Yeah. Put it on your frigid at home. Yeah. Yeah. To live is Christ. Yeah. Um, what, it, what I read here is what, um, while Paul is alive, he's Christ's property and Christ is his portion. Christ is the source and secret of his joy. That's, that's as, as concise a way I can put it. I think that's right. My thought was, as the body of Christ, we're 
the hands and feet of Christ in this world. So since we represent him, uh, we do his work, we spread his kingdom. It kind of made me remember, you know, after you die, there's no more mission trips, right? We right. aren't the hands and feet of Jesus in the afterlife. Uh, in the afterlife, it's time to wait for the resurrection or to wait for your reward. So, yeah, I think to live as Christ, it's to do his work. Um, Nick, verse 22. Right. Paul says that his he wants he wants his labor to be fruitful for himself. Now, why is Paul's labor fruitful for himself? I thought it was for Christ. Well, it is for Christ. Um, uh, back in verse eleven, uh, he had talked about uh, being filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. So there's that, but it's also it seems like it's for Paul apparently as well. Um, just as there are fruit, uh, there is fruit which will uh, end up in the account of the Philippians in four verse seventeen. Yep. Uh, so the fruit idea kind of gets spread around here, and specifically here in verse twenty-two, Paul says, "If I live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me." And I don't think he has a problem uh, differentiating between him and Christ. In fact, if Christ is his portion and he is his property, then whatever is Paul's is Christ, and whatever is Christ is Paul's. Um, it reminded me of uh, Klein Payton wrote a book. Klein Payton, who was the founder of uh, our alma mater, SIBI, Sons International Bible Institute, he wrote a book, and it's entitled Broken by Fruitfulness. And the first story in that book is related to the title. Uh, he and a few other students are in a peach orchard. A guy had happened to plant an apple tree there, and it just it wasn't taken care of and um, had not been harvested. And it all these apples on the tree and the limbs were broken because there was so much fruit on the tree. And Klein, with tears in his eyes, says, essentially, that's how I want to appear before the Lord one day. I want to be broken by the weight of the fruit born for the Master. And perhaps that is a mindset somewhat akin to what Paul's mindset is here in this text. Does that make sense? Yeah, it's a, it's a beautiful story. I hadn't heard that. Um. I'm going to have to remember that. It's a good illustration. <laughs> well, okay. So we know the fruit of righteousness comes through Jesus Christ. But then Paul has this other thing talking about his fruitful labor. All right, Jesus Christ, our master, will reward us, his slaves, his bond right. servants. So we work for him. He gives us a reward. Uh, the reward cannot be salvation because that's a gift. So we're not talking about salvation. This brings us back again to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 10 through 15, where Paul says that there's a foundation, Christ Jesus, and then on top of that, you build a structure, and you use different building materials. And he's, he's really he's talking about the discipling process. And he says, if your works, after tested by fire, are all burnt up, then the foundation still remains, which is Christ Jesus. You'll be saved. You won't lose your salvation, but if your work remains on that foundation, the work you did for the kingdom, if that remains, then Paul says you get a reward. You get a reward. So Paul wants his reward. Uh, the question that's probably screaming is, what reward are you talking about? Yeah, right. <laughs> if, if salvation is not the reward, what, what else would we want? What else would we even need? I have two ideas. So number one, we know we're getting a resurrection body. But something that you may not have thought about is that in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 35 and following, Paul starts talking about different kinds of bodies. And he starts using the cosmos as an example, the sun, the moon, and the stars. And he says they all vary in their degree of glory. One's not the same glory as the other. And so... This might give us a hint at the idea that our resurrection bodies will be eternal, glorious, powerful, indestructible. Not the same, though. Not the same. There will be differing degrees of glory in which resurrection bodies are given out. That's what I think. So who's going to get, you know, what kind of body? I think it's going to be based off of your reward which is based off of your fruitful labor, the work you did. So that's number one. That's throwing it out there for 
uh, consideration. The second one is that I do believe in the Christian's co-rulership of the earth. No, I'm not a dispensationalist. Not. <laughs> no way. <laughs> no yeah, how. Take it easy, Tim Lay. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But hold on. Don't get too excited now. <laughs> yes, I do think we will reign on earth, and I think that that's going to be something more than we currently have. So there's a, there's a reign on earth now by Christ and by his church, but I think there's going to be an even greater extent of rulership. So 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 25, also Hebrews chapter 10, verse 13, both of those say that Christ will rule and is ruling until his enemies are made a footstool. And so you get the idea that Christ's enemies are not yet made a footstool. He disarmed them at the cross. He cleared the path for salvation and for worldwide evangelism. But there are still enemies of the cross, enemies of Christ, enemies of the church that need to be made a footstool for Christ Jesus. So it's not done yet is all I'm saying. The inevitable has begun. It's still unfolding today. It's that tension that we call the already but not yet. So our work that we do for that, for Christ, that contributes to our reward. So when I look at Revelation chapter 2, verse 26, and uh, I know people get nervous when I use Revelation to say anything, right? So we'll add 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 11 through 13 in addition to that, okay? Because they say the same thing. It says that if we die with him, then we will reign with him. So here's the question. When exactly are we going to reign with Christ if we have to die first? And over what are we going to reign if there's no more earth? Those are serious questions to consider. So I would say that the early Christians suffered two great trials. Number one, physical persecution. Number two, evil rulers and oppressors. The resurrection, I believe, reverses both of those things by the receiving of an indestructible body and being made rulers of the world. Their situation is completely flipped. So maybe that's why people were lining up to be martyrs. <laughs> yeah. All right. Woo. That was a long one. <laughs> sorry. Sorry about that. <laughs> well, we've, we've talked about degrees of punishment before, but it's, I don't know if we've talked about the degrees of reward and that's an important component as well, because I think it's a biblical one. Yeah, I think it's so. It's a biblical idea. And it's exciting. I think we should talk more about more about it. Well, Nick, um, do all Christians then, continuing the conversation, looking at verse 23, do all Christians, when they die, do they go to be with Christ right away? Is that how it happens? Yeah, this, this uh, question is born out of the phrase, uh, my desire is to depart, which is language for dying, and be with Christ, especially that phrase there, be with Christ. And uh, I, I actually preached earlier this year a series called uh, Hereafter that we talked about uh, where do we go when we die. And here's the shorthand answer. Uh, N.T. Wright calls this suitcase language, and I think that's right. It's like you're uh, it's like you're going on a trip, and you put all your clothes, and you put all your 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 toiletry bag and and everything into one suitcase, and you're just going to take that with you wherever you go. It's a suitcase. And then you, when you get there, you actually have to unpack everything. And that's what a phrase like depart and be with Christ is, is a suitcase. You have to unpack it. And, um, and so shorthand, abbreviated way, where Paul is talking about all the afterlife events, because there are other places where he doesn't necessarily make the jump from here to there uh, so quickly. Right. Um, after you go, there is, I'm persuaded, there's a disembodied state where our spirit, the body without the spirit is dead, and so the spirit goes somewhere, and I believe that's to the Hadean realm, just the unseen realm of disembodied spirits. Right. And then Christ comes back for the final time, the final coming. There's judgment. There's uh, resurrection. I got that in the wrong order, I think. But anyway, <laughs> Paul takes all that for granted in this phrase, is what I'm saying. He takes for granted that all that happens... And so just in a very brief suitcase way, he talks about how we go be with Christ, and we are at home with the Lord. Uh, that's uh, Second Corinthians language yeah. as well. So, so um, what you're saying is he assumes the audience knows what he's talking about. He doesn't have to unpack it for him. He can just throw it out there. 
I think so. Here's your suitcase. There you go. Well, uh, yeah, for sure. If I were going to unpack it, mm-hmm. here's here's what my suitcase would look like as I unpack it. I would say that uh, when you die, uh, you don't go immediately to be with Christ Jesus unless you're a martyr. I think martyrs do go immediately to heaven. And by heaven, I don't mean the heavenly places like the spirit realm, because I think there are different uh, portions of the spirit realm. And one of those portions, one of those areas, is the realm of disembodied spirits uh, that you called the Hadean realm. I think that's right. So here's my way of thinking about the afterlife that seems coherent to me, but of course it's not the only coherent way to see it. Um, I believe that all souls, once disembodied, once they die, they go to Sheol. That's the Old Testament word for it. I'm with you so far. Yeah, Hades, New Testament word for it, okay? In Sheol or Hades, there happens to be different parts or neighborhoods. I like to call it neighborhoods, right? So um, the part for the righteous, the righteous neighborhood, I believe is called Abraham's bosom. Or that's maybe sometimes it's called paradise. I'm not sure if they're meant to be the same, but um, this is a nice place to go. In the story of the rich man and Lazarus, if that's right, if that's a a story using real elements and not just uh, a parable using like fake or symbolic elements, I think it's a real story. So I'm going to go that way, right? So <laughs> then there's a chasm that separates the righteous from the wicked, just like the rich man and Lazarus couldn't cross over to each other. So that's in Hades. There are bad parts in Hades, spirit prisons, if you want to say it that way, and then good parts. Okay, so I think that description that I just gave you, I think it matches up pretty nicely with Second Temple literature. Um, A lot of the Second Temple literature and Old Testament pseudepigrapha writings, uh, they describe it in very similar ways, not just the, the parable of the rich man and Lazarus in the New Testament. So I think there are exceptions to all of this. So here's where I'm going. So in the Old Testament, we know Enoch didn't die. He was just taken up by God. Elijah, right. the same way, just taken up by God. Right. And um, I think that in there, being taken up, they got their glorified body. They got their glorified body. So if they got their glorified body, then that means their reward was to immediately be with God in heaven with their new glorified bodies. I think Moses eventually got this too, since he appears with Elijah next to Jesus at the transfiguration. And I only got that idea from Second Peter chapter 1, because in the context of resurrection, in the laying aside of one's earthly dwelling or earthly tent, Peter says, I know that this is what happens because I saw it. I saw Elijah and Moses next to Jesus in the transfiguration. And uh, I know this makes people nervous, but in Revelation chapter 6, <laughs> the martyrs are not in Sheol. The martyrs are not in Hades. The martyrs are not in Abraham's bosom. The martyrs are in heaven. And they're given white robes. And if you go on to read chapter 7, verses 14 and 15, I think those white robes are meant to indicate their new glorified bodies they are given a new tabernacle, a new dwelling in heaven. And so Peter uses that language in Second Peter chapter 1. And uh, I think that's why Paul wanted to be a martyr. I think he knew what his reward was and what was to come. And so I think it makes Paul, it makes Ignatius, the apostolic father, it makes all these guys lining up for martyrdom look less crazy. Because think about this, Nick. If somebody gave you an opportunity to say, hey, do you want to go wait in Abraham's bosom, which sounds like a nice place, until the resurrection? Or do you want to get your new body right now and be with Jesus in heaven? Which would you pick? <laughs> hmm. And what if one came with more authority and status as well? Hmm. I would pick to be with Jesus with my new body right away. So if that's what martyrdom brings, because it's a greater reward, then sign me up. Sign me up. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well... Man, I, that was a long one again. I'm really sorry about that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, you know, people have a lot of questions about that kind of stuff. They, I know that. There you go. Okay, verse 26. Mm-hmm. Why would the Philippians, it says they have a proud confidence in Paul. Why would they have that proud confidence? 
Uh, my English standard, by the way, reads uh, ample cause to glory. Um, at some future point, um, he would return, right? Um, my coming to you again, Paul talking there about his return to the Philippians. And so these Christians then would overflow with praise and glory to Christ Jesus. After all the prayers and all the petitions to God, to have their brother released and to have him return, that would be a joyous occasion. And so yeah. I think that's what he's talking there about the, the proud confidence or the ample cause to glory uh, in verse 26. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And I think Paul had a lot invested in the Philippians, and he rejoiced at their faithfulness. And I think the Philippians had a lot invested in Paul. And so they rejoice at his faithfulness and his endurance. And so I see it as a, uh, a, a picture of both Paul and the Philippians propelling each other into a spiral of blessings and reward for each other. So it's like Paul saying in chapter 4, I seek for the profit which increases to your account. And then you can almost imagine the Philippians going, no, Paul, we seek for the profit that increases to your account. <laughs> and right. so trying to outdo each other in love and service. I like that. Uh, Nick, what does it mean to live a life worthy of the gospel? This is in verse 27. Paul uses this phrase from time to time. What does he mean here? Yeah, there's a marginal reading um, that says, behave as citizens worthily. Um, and literally what it says is, only let your life as citizens be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And that only uh, there is emphatic, and it means above all, um, at all costs, uh, do this one thing. And so the Philippians, uh, again, this is a bit of the historical context, they lived in a free Roman colony. And they would immediately pick up on that language of what it means to live like citizens. As Christians... They were citizens of the imperial city of Christ. That's why Paul will say later in 320, talking about their citizenship is in heaven. Okay? And so as members of that holy community, they had obligations one to another, and they also had obligations to Christ the Lord. And so a life worthy of the gospel of Christ, uh, you said it, it's a frequent theme in Paul's epistles, Romans 16.2, Ephesians 4.1, Colossians 1.10, and it denotes the obligations that the gospel imposes, the privileges it brings, but also a high calling to fulfill. Mm. And so the obligations, those would be obedience and holiness. Uh, the privileges would be things like salvation and blessings from God. Uh, and the high calling would be uh, to live a manner of life that is like Christ's. And so I think all that is uh, part and parcel to uh, Paul talking about let only let your life, your manner of life, be worthy of the gospel of Christ. That seems to be what's in view here. Does mm. that make sense? Yeah, I really like that. Really like that. And that's um, sort of prepping the way, sort of stirring them up before he mentions the uh, the hard part, Philippians' opponents. Right. They, they got to stand up to him. Who are the Philippians' opponents? Yeah, so this is verse 28. Uh, you're not frightened in anything by your opponents. There are a couple options here. Um, one is, uh, you could be talking about those already mentioned, the rivals of Paul back in verses 15 and 17. Um, the second option is Paul is introducing the enemies of the cross that he'll pick up and address specifically in 3 verse 2 and the following verses, verse 18 of chapter 3 as well. Um, either way, the Philippians faced them and they were not to be frightened. And the word there for frightened is like a, like a skittish horse. Right, um, and they so they're not to be frightened because they're standing and striving for Christ, uh, which is again back in verse twenty-seven. They're standing firm in one spirit, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Well, I agree. I think that that's. Uh, I vote for option two. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's probably the better of the two options. Yeah, for sure. Uh. The last question we have here, Nick, um, is very interesting phrasing because it talks about belief, but it also talks about suffering, and it mentions right. both as something that was granted to them, like he's like it's some sort of gift. Is this what's going on here, Nick? How are they granted or gifted to believe and to suffer? In verse twenty-nine. 
Yeah, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. God has given the Philippians a marvelous gift of grace, and that's another way of understanding that word there for granted. It's been granted to you um, for Christ's sake. Um, It's a gift of grace. First, God granted, granted them to believe in Christ. Um, that's not only to believe in him. And a key example of this, by the way, is Lydia. Back in Acts 16 and verse 14, her heart was opened, uh, and it was the Lord who opened her heart. Wow. Um, so, yeah, that's an interesting little verse there. Um, so that was the first gift of grace. The second gift of grace uh, would be uh, that God granted them to suffer for his sake. And there's a blessing attached to that. This is something we've been kind of talking about throughout this episode, and in we haven't mentioned this passage, but it's it's true, uh, from Jesus himself, Matthew 5, verses 11 and 12, about those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for uh, yours is the kingdom of heaven. Rejoice, be glad, uh, because great is your reward in heaven. Okay? Wow. So, yeah, all of the, I think both of those things are factored in here, um, and how it's a granting, it's a gift of grace when we look at it that way, belief and suffering. I think another uh, component of this gift idea for the, for the gospel is that believing in the gospel was a gift, but think about the opportunity available in the first century. The opportunity for hearing the gospel was limited to the growth and the courage of the first century church, right? So in as much as one felt you know, blessed by having this opportunity to respond to the gospel, uh, if they happen to be in the right place at the right time to hear the gospel meaning you know the gospel is a message that goes hand in hand with god's own hand touching our hearts i like that verse with lydia it's powerful yeah yeah um he says at the same time you're blessed by the opportunity to suffer for christ when given the opportunity to suffer for him so uh, such an opportunity for suffering gives us a chance to add more to our reward in the resurrection, to add more to our great reward in heaven, as uh, Jesus says in Matthew 5. So, yeah, nah, I mean, is it? I, I would say it's pretty confident saying, at least in this part of the world, there are less opportunities to suffer as a martyr for Christ, right? We just don't have that opportunity. We are christianized western civilization uh you go over to the eastern side though right Hmm. you still have some opportunities to be martyred for the cause of christ and uh i wonder if if they know i wonder if the christians over there who are enduring by faith i wonder if they know how great their reward is in heaven how uh, great a reward they immediately get the elevated status so a lot of things going on. This was a long chapter, 30 verses. <laughs> and 30 for next time, too. So yeah. I'm impressed that we kept it just right around an hour. Well, I think we'll be um, definitely covering Philippians chapter 2 next time. Nick, you got any final thoughts for this episode? Uh, no, I think we've pretty well upholstered <laughs> the subject matter. Um <laughs> But uh, in the meantime, if uh, you'd be so kind, go on to either iTunes, the iTunes Store, or Google Play and uh, search Swordplay. You'll find our podcast on both of those platforms. You can download episodes and leave a review. And that way you can get the word out about this podcast to a bunch more people. That's right. You could, uh, If you like one of the episodes, you could post it on your Facebook page, and that would help other people to hear it as well. And you could send questions to uh, swordplaypodcast at gmail.com. I know that's a long email address, so I'll say it again, swordplaypodcast at gmail.com, and we'll collect all your questions and uh, answer them on the air. Yeah, I view this podcast as really just a tool, almost like an audio commentary where if you're studying a book of the bible and you're on the chapter that you're studying it just happens to be one of the chapters we've covered you should be able to listen to our episode and uh, through the questions that we ask sort of go on this learning 
journey and discovery with us as to what's really going on in the text. Uh, Pray that God will use this podcast to help you grow and to learn and to edify you uh, in every way. We'll see you next time. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Swordplay. Swordplay.